So I always teach people to start with the who I am, why I'm here story, because there's a level of authenticity when you explain who you are as a person that a lot of people say, well, that's not relevant. Oh yeah, it's relevant based on whether somebody's going to trust you or not. And you can't walk in and say, hey, my name is Annette and I'm trustworthy because they kind of want to make up that decision for themselves. So what we do is we share a story which is a simulation of an experience. So ideally, the people that we want to convince could have seen us in a bind when it would have been easier to do anything other than the right thing. And we did the right thing anyway. That's the kind of story that causes them to trust us. So we can't play a video snap of it. And so what we do is we create a simulated emotional experience by narrating some details in a sequence that at the end of the sequence causes our listener to come to the conclusion, oh, she's trustworthy. I want to hear what she has to say next. Welcome to Brand Blueprints, a podcast for individuals and brands that want to harness the power of story to be more memorable and impactful. My name is Malik Yarbo, and I'm a paid media specialist, and I'm interviewing authors, storytelling experts, and builders of brands to talk about their process, the lessons they have learned, and the formulas they use to engage and have an impact on their audience. In this episode, we'll cover how to tell genuine, authentic stories with best-selling author Annette Simmons, who holds degrees in both marketing and psychology and has received wide critical acclaim for her book, The Story Factor, that has been named one of the top 100 business books of all time. Some of the subjects we'll cover will be storytelling from the view of evolutionary psychology, how to reduce mistakes and accelerate learning with storytelling, and the type of stories that can help with overcoming objections. We will cover this and much more. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Brand Blueprints. Today, we have the author, consultant, and vibrant keynote speaker, Annette Simmons. And I'm super, super excited to introduce her today. Annette Simmons, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks. In this digital age that we're in right now, do you think that storytelling has a larger part to play? Or does it have a smaller part to play? I look at storytelling from a very big picture point of view. In the beginning, it was theater or literature will teach you that story has a plot and characters and all that sort of stuff. And But if you zoom out to as big a picture as you can, I like to think about storytelling in the terms of evolutionary psychology. We're beginning to understand that our emotions and the stories we tell are an important part of the fabric of the way our civilization works. And of course, when we're kids, we remember playing with stories, remember reading the stories. What we may not remember is that those things were so vital in teaching us who to trust, who not to trust, how to be trustworthy, and what's the goal of life. And so when we tell stories, we are actually reinforcing people's mental rehearsals 
about what's important and what's not important. And so when I look at storytelling, I look at it in that broader context. I do serve business. I absolutely have an affinity for those things we can measure and profitability and all that stuff. But at the larger place, I think that we need to understand how vital these stories always have been and are now. Right now, since we're stuck with the limited interaction of Zoom, it's not that storytelling is more important or less important, really, because it's always been vitally important. The question is, what stories are we telling? And is that the kind of world we want to live in? Now, there is no reason why you can't make a profit and also make people feel like they're part of a larger world where doing the right thing matters. And so one of the things that I find when I'm teaching storytelling is that I have to reorient. We have to kind of go back up river from what it is that that certain business people's expectations of story is, which is teach me how to sell ice water to Alaskans or teach me how to control their brains. Even that term control their narrative just makes me nuts because the truth is we're trying to get people engaged we're not going to make them obedient. I mean, that was hard back in the day, and it's virtually impossible now. You look at how media is changing the landscape of Cuba. I was reading an article this morning about how sharing these stories, specifically the stories of what happens to artists who aren't toeing the line, those stories spread, and immediately there's this uprising of human emotion and human activity. And so really, we want to be in the stream of that, not working against it. Very true. And how would you say that storytelling can help with seeing each other's perspectives? Well, I, I always start with, I use stories because they're the best way to explain those sorts of things. And so the story that for me matters most, and I use it a lot when I'm introducing storytelling to business people, is the idea of King Midas. And for those who who may not have heard, King Midas is just a simple story. He wished that everything he touched would turn to gold, which sounds like a great thing. And then he got his wish. And then his little daughter ran up to him and he went to pick her up and he turned her into a cold, dead statue of gold. And so what we need to remember is that that if we are only getting other people to think our thoughts, what happens is we're cutting ourselves off from what their thoughts are. And that's the nature of engagement. So like I mentioned before, obedience is, is, is not an option anymore. What the best we can hope is to get someone to willingly engage with us and want to stay connected because of the mutual benefit. Well, When we tell a story, a lot of times business people are focused on what is it I want them to think at the end of this story? And what is it I want them to do at the end of the story? But they forget that more important to the person they're talking to is the story about who you are and why you're here. And believe me, I open my email and I look at some of the emails that I get sent and I have a strong opinion about who these people are and why they're contacting me. And it's not favorable. And I'll hit delete in those circumstances. That's a good representation of even what happens in presentations. So I always teach people to start with the who I am, why I'm here story, because there's a level of authenticity when you explain who you are as a person, that a lot of people say, well, that's not relevant. Oh yeah, it's relevant based on whether somebody's going to trust you or not. And you can't walk in and say, hey, my name is Annette and I'm trustworthy because they kind of want to make up that decision for themselves. So what we do is we share a story, 
which is a simulation of an experience. So ideally, the people that we want to convince could have seen us in a bind when it would have been easier to do anything other than the right thing. And we did the right thing anyway. That's the kind of story that causes them to trust us. So we can't play a video snap of it. And and experience is still the best teacher. But second best is story. And so what we do is we create a simulated emotional experience by narrating some details in a sequence that at the end of the sequence causes our listener to come to the conclusion, oh, she's trustworthy. I want to hear what she has to say next. That's wonderful. So what would your advice be to, let's say if there's a young person out there that's listening to this and feels that they're not being trusted in the workplace or they're not being able to convince an interviewer that they're trustworthy, how could they tell a short little story that could increase that trust? Well, the first thing I would ask them is to question the story they're telling themselves about the situation. So if if you're sure that person isn't trusting you, you have a story about that person. And usually their reasons for not trusting you aren't good reasons, at least not to you, because you're trustworthy. So one of the problems, I think, is the story we tell ourselves about the person we're talking to. And I think we have to show faith and trust in that person first, that they will see who I am and the real reasons of why I do this work. And so that then brings us to what you were asking, which is what little short story do you tell to help people see who you really are, that you're a good person, you're here for the right reasons. And I think there's four different buckets of stories we all walk around with. And most important for you to answer for yourself is what is it that earns you the right to be trusted by these people? What is it that you have done or what values do you have that make you special, that would make you a a very valuable part of the team? And so write those qualities down. So maybe it's that you have a good sense of humor. Maybe it's that you're willing to admit your mistakes. I'm not sure which one it will be, but whichever qualities that you've been complimented on, there's four places to look for an example that will turn into a short little story. It may not start out like a short little story, but trust me, you can take any story and tell it in three minutes. So the first place to look is when was a time you shined? When was a time when it would have been easier to do anything other than whatever that value you have written down for yourself and you decide to stay true to the value first? Most likely it will have cost you time or money. And if it hasn't, then I'm not sure how important that value is to you. So you should be able to go back in your memories and find a story when you were tested. When I wrote the book on uh, A Safe Place for Dangerous Truth, I was teaching people how to facilitate a very deep form of dialogue that basically requires the facilitator to check their ego at the door. And I understand that people go into training and development, not because they like to check their ego at the door. So it was going to be a tough sort of learning experience. And I wanted to create enough space for people to experiment and tell themselves the truth, maybe about their control needs. Well, I had 10 places, which I think that was the maximum for this intense level of of workshop. And I had five people already enrolled. And each of them were paying their own way. They were independent contractors. And then I had one of my big clients call and say, how many spaces do you have left? And I said, well, I've got five left. She said, we'll take them all. I said, well, 
actually, I don't know if you've been in a class where 50% of the people are from Google or whoever, and, and everybody else is independent. So I suggested that maybe send a couple of people in this course and then a couple of people in the next one. And she was so mad at me. She says, are you turning down my registrations? And I said, well, I, what I'm trying to do is, and I, I started to explain again, and, and she's like, well, fine, then never mind. And practically hung up on me. So that tells you a little bit of my background. And then you can decide what my definition of integrity is. So that's the time I shine. But even more fun is the time you blew it. And so if you tell a story about a time you blew it, a time when you knew you should have done the right thing and you didn't, it does double duty because people can hear in your voice, you're not going to let that happen again. But the other thing is that you've just provided solid evidence that you can admit your mistakes. And when I'm trying to trust somebody, that's a criteria I take pretty highly. Another criteria I look for is I want to know somebody has a sense of gratitude because in the world of fairness, anybody who's powerful or at the top of their game who doesn't have a sense of gratitude is not telling themselves the truth. So I ask you to tell a story about a mentor. So think about the person who taught you how to do business right who taught you how to be a good person. And when you tell a story of what that person did, then your listener will realize, oh, okay, so he really noticed that. That must be really important to him. And the second part is that you're showing gratitude. Again, this story is a visible piece of evidence that you understand what it's like to be helped and you're more likely to be the kind of person who wants to help others. And then finally, you can take a scene from a book or a movie and let somebody else pay for your special effects. And you can take that scene and say, so, so this presentation is going to be like The Matrix or whatever. One of the ones I remember fondly was a lawyer who had been the butt of quite a few lawyer jokes. We were giving him a hard time. He stood up and he said, I decided to become a lawyer the summer of my 12th year, because that was the year that I read the book To Kill a Mockingbird. And I decided I wanted to be a lawyer like Atticus. Well, really, I wanted to be a father like Atticus. So that's what a four-sentence story. And he borrowed from literature because I do not suggest anybody make up stories. Let the artist do that for you. You can find stories everywhere, but making up a story that could have been true but isn't is the fast road to losing trust. For sure. Yes, and also what I'm also trying to do is instead of maybe coming up with a really long and elaborate story, I'm just thinking of maybe a short scene or a short epiphany. And I think that's that's the important aspect that people don't get is that you have to come up with the long one first because your brain is going to make those important connections that don't seem obvious but are obvious to you emotionally. Like I would like this, these people to know this about me. Then you condense it into just a scene like this guy did when he was talking about Atticus Finch. But the finding the stories is not the place to focus on brevity. What you're focused on is emotion. You want a strong emotion in your story. And Tolstoy, I, I love his definition of art. Tolstoy said that art is when we take an emotion that we've had and then through dance or painting or literature, we recreate it so that person has the same emotion. And there's a finite number of human experiences that we have. 
we are so much more alike than we are different. Every single one of us has been betrayed. Every single one of us has betrayed someone else. And we've all been forgiven when we didn't really deserve it and ideally have done the same. So what happens is when you find one of those big stories that has a, a strong human value in it, you'll find it because there's a strong emotion that was associated in your brain with that memory. And so you're looking for the strong emotions. One of the other definitions for story that I give is a significant emotional experience. And so when you find that strong emotion and then you narrate it enough of it so that somebody can feel the shape of it and understand, oh my God, that happened to me too. These stories don't strike us as relevant unless they have happened to us too. And so it's wonderful to expand your reach and come up with stories that cause everybody in the audience to start nodding and smiling and thinking, oh man, I've been there. And that's when you get that bandwidth of connection. And when you have that bandwidth of connection, then's the time to start to give your presentation data and details. Okay. So going for the connection first before presenting. If there's no bridge there, you're just throwing your presentation into the vacuum that exists between you. Right. Because basically, if you throw facts, then without the initial story to it, then people will pretty much just block it out, right? The way I look at it is, is none of us want any more damn information right now. Mm -hmm. We're so up to our eyeballs and information. It's just like, God, don't make me learn one more thing. But one thing I can guarantee you that people want and desperately want is faith. And it's faith that you're a good person, faith that this idea is actually going to work, faith that I'll be glad I participated in the end. And that's an emotion. That's not a function of facts. It's a function of an emotional affinity, whether I consider you to have the same sort of definition of fairness and trustworthiness as I do. And in your book, you have six stories, uh, six yeah. different types of stories that I think everyone should know especially leaders, but it could benefit anyone to just be aware of these stories and have them in their toolbox. So, so number one is the who I am story. Right. But when I introduce the six stories, I think it's important, again, to consider where I'm coming from with storytelling. So I'm not coming from storytelling, like from a political point of view, which is I'm trying to convince you of something. And then there's this one vote that I either win or I lose. I come from storytelling from the tradition of group process. And so all of my work really has been focused on getting groups. And initially my first book was about turf wars, about groups that were in an impasse. So that was a baptism by fire. And I began to realize why there was so much infighting. And the reason there was so much infighting is because they couldn't answer these six questions because they weren't telling these six kinds of stories. And so people want to know who you are. We've already talked about that before they trust you. They want to know why you're here. What is it that, that you're getting out of it? Because if I suspect that you're exploiting me and that you're going to get more out of it than I am, I'm not going to trust you. I'm not going to be interested in what you have to say next. And it's okay to talk about the financial investment and the return on investment for all of us. Sure. Yeah, we want to do well. But we need to put that in the context of something that is not going to be exploitative. 
So I believe that you need value and action stories. Back in the 80s and 90s, when I was at Ericsson and J. Walter Thompson, all the big companies, they decided they would be value-based. And so they came up with their five values, usually. And then they printed them on laminated cards and handed them out to us. And they put them on posters. And it's just like, okay. And the value like integrity, well, that means different things to different people. And even means different things in different situations. Integrity may mean speaking up when it's risky. Or integrity could mean staying silent. So if you don't tell stories about what values your group, your team wants to uphold, then What happens is that they're just doing lip service to some term and you can re-describe. Integrity means that I never speak. One of the military phrases is that I only give information on a need to know basis as if that's integrity. No, I'm sorry. Not to me. I want to know where you're at and you know where your thoughts are. So anyway, so that's the values and action story. You need a vision story. And uh, a lot of times I think that's good to come up with as a collective. But there are times when I will deliver a story in the beginning to try to influence that. So when we started talking, I put storytelling in the context of evolutionary psychology. So because my vision is that regardless of how much money we make or don't make in business, let's try to save the earth while we're doing it. I'm worried about climate change. I'm worried about the pandemic. And I think it would be irresponsible for us to look for stories that don't also take that into account. So there's a teaching story, which, for instance, in the medical field, you don't want somebody to learn how to let someone die with their mistakes on the job. What you can do is tell a story about a time when something like that happened. And a lot of the quality stories, people who are involved in patient satisfaction and and quality measures have found that these stories can save us from making mistakes and can accelerate someone's learning instead of just do one, two, three, four. When I tell a story about For instance, the woman who continued to fall to the point where our fall rates were just getting us hammered by the patient quality people, and then finally realizing there was this one woman who fell probably more often than anybody else, and then going to talk to that one woman and learning that it was the only time she was touched by another human being is when she would fall and somebody would come and help her get up. And so often... We need to teach things that really don't have a a strong module sort of base and quantitative metrics. And so teaching stories are a good way to do that. And then finally, I think that I know what you're thinking story is just a wonderful way to overcome someone's objections before they stake themselves out. And so when I tell the King Midas story, that's an I know what you're thinking story, because I'm pretty sure that in a business audience, people are going to expect me to teach them how everything they touch could turn to gold. And so I have to acknowledge that, validate that. And then say, is that really what you want? So that they can overcome that objection in their own mind without it having to be an adversarial thing between me and them. That's a great one. And I love the, I know what you're thinking story that you have in the book about the young executive that everyone is doubting. And then he comes in and he tells a story about how he was wrong one time. Um, Oh, right. With the green and red shoes. That one. Yeah, he's... 
I'm, I can't remember what I named him in the book, but he's a real person. And uh, he was born very, very wealthy. And he was coming into a board situation where he's the youngest person there. And so he told an I blew it story that was, of course, about a yacht, because that's the kind of stories he has, that he had superimposed the design for uh, a sound system. And the people were like, do you understand your left from your right or what? And so because red... I think red is for starboard and green is for port. I'm not sure. But anyway, they gave him a set of tennis shoes, one green and one red that would help him remember left and right. And they loved it because he was talking about a mistake he made. And so I think it relaxed the old guys thinking, well, okay, at least he, he understands that we might know more than he does and is willing to admit that. No, that was a, a great story. And, I, and that definitely stuck with me as I move forward. So I like that one. And, uh, and also I've seen studies saying that Generation Z and the, the generation that's coming up now that they put more emphasis on the values that the companies that they buy from have. So I think that vulnerability in the workplace and kind of showing where your values are standing at as a company is becoming increasingly more important. And we kind of stepping into an environment where the product itself really is very easy to replicate, right? right? So easy to, to create something physical now. And so what differentiates the mostly now the differentiation is almost in the value. Yeah. The and I think there's a real deep aspect of humanity that is responding to mistakes and crises that we've made for ourselves because we weren't paying attention to values. And so I think this is a worldwide response. Humans want to survive. And in order to survive, we're going to have to pay more attention to values. And I welcome it. I welcome it. I think it's great. And man, they're fierce too. I have watched younger people hold older people to the fire in ways that I've never seen in my lifetime. So Fons Trumpenar wrote a book called Riding the Waves of Culture. What I found in Trumpenar's work is that whatever culture we came from, that's the level at which we learn to believe what's true and what's not true. But it's in interacting with another culture that we have the time to develop. And so that individualistic versus collective, when I moved over there, first of all, they had to beat it out of me. And they had just the best time in the world doing it. Australians, wonderful practical jokers. And of course, they really, what they call, took the mickey out of me over and over again. And eventually I learned and I developed what I call perceptual agility to where I can operate from this place as well as this place. And that's where the spiral that Trumpenard defined as developing between cultures as we do intercultural work. But I like the idea also of just this idea that we experience that even within ourselves. I think Jung and the Myers-Briggs is a good example of that kind of spiral where you start out maybe as an introvert, but as you do work, you start to learn both and vice versa. And extroverts have to learn to shut up sometimes. That's very true. And I, I will try my best. Oh, no, not, not, not directed at you at all. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, but those are great points. And I will have to look him up. His first name is Phones, F-O-N-S. And the book, he's maybe aged out. My peers are starting to age out of wanting to be in the spotlight. But the second edition of, of his book not only took the different 
countries and created bar charts, whether you value universality or specificity. And universality is like, we all have to abide by the same rules. That's the only way that's fair. Specificity is like, what are you crazy? I live out in the middle of nowhere. I need more access to internet than you do. And that's the definition of fair. And so those different fundamental cultural values also exist in our occupation groups. So you got somebody from HR, they're interested in the rules. They want to keep it as fair as possible. If you have somebody out in the field doing sales, it's like, man, it depends. Right. Yeah. And so when I work with people, I get them to tell stories, get HR to tell stories to the field and field to tell stories to HR. And that creates that spiral of understanding and embracing both narratives. Amazing. And I think that's kind of the challenge there which you said, like embracing both narratives. And that might take some development from the individual. That's what storytelling does. Storytelling has the capacity to hold both points of view in the same sequence. So if you're doing a linear analysis, you're doing regression analysis, it's going to be either a zero or one at some point. But big T truths, and that's what I think story has, builds into our DNA of big T truths. And the way I described them are truths that were true before you and I were born, and they're going to be true long after we're gone. And often those big T truths are a couplet of a paradox that it is both important to be flexible and to be firm. It's it's important to be expressive and to listen. And so that's the big T truth. And facts will tend to create things like leadership competencies, that you're supposed to be firm and not too flexible. And the truth is that you have to be both. That's great. And I think that's a very advanced way of uh, teaching someone a deeper lesson instead of just saying, do it this way. Right. Yeah. A much more long lasting form of teaching, because right now we can't predict what next week is going to look like. And so if we're going to teach somebody something, we don't want to teach them just that tactic. We want to teach them how to think in the future when it's totally unpredictable. And so when we share these stories, we, we begin to coalesce around, okay, this is the, the kind of values that, we're, that we think are important. The, this is the way we're going to deal with difficulties. And then everybody's in has the same general intent, but it can adapt to whatever specific situation that's come up. Which is great. And how do you think living in Australia shaped you? Oh, my Lord. I was terrible. I grew up in Shreveport, Louisiana. I I can't even begin to tell you. I mean, my daddy told me that I needed to blow my own horn. You've you've heard all of these metaphors, and that's a good way to understand what uh, culture is like. So the squeaky wheel gets the grease. I was taught to believe that. And so I went over to Australia, and I was a squeaky wheel. And I didn't get any grease. They would find ways to exclude me or have a meeting where I couldn't go. And it took me a while to understand that I was just driving them nuts. And then something happened for me personally. In Australia, I liked who I was in Australia much more than I liked who I was when I lived in America. I was really judgmental about myself. I was a bit of an overachiever. 
I think the word arrogant wouldn't be non-applicable. So when I got to Australia and I started to bend a little and I started to adopt more collective points of view, started to develop a sense of humor because you can't exist over there without a sense of humor. And Americans don't sometimes have the best sense of humor. It changed me. And I love that it exposed to me to uh, a more compassionate, more collegial way to be. So I'm really grateful for that time. That's great. And I kind of went the other way around because I moved from Sweden. So I moved as from Sweden to, to America. Uh, so I came as a collectivist to an individualistic place. And so I was wondering when you moved to Australia, did it make you realize or did you question some of your values or which ones of your values that came from your own thinking and which values that actually was just given to you? So we are social animals. And when our context changes, our behavior changes. And so continuing to act ultra-American would not have gotten me promoted. So initially, it's just because what I was doing wasn't working because it didn't fit the, the circumstances. And that causes pain. And then that causes introspection. And then you experiment with a different way. So I'm watching how they do it. And I began to experiment myself with doing it. And being more collective and, and less worried about who gets credit, more worried about the fact that we share the same vision. And like I said, I just liked myself better. Now, I know that we're not supposed to say that one culture is better than the other, but as far as I'm concerned, the American individualism has been exported to all corners of the globe. I have friends in Australia. When I first moved there, everybody got four weeks vacation a year. Everybody. And you got paid 17.5% loading more because you were spending more on vacation, which to an American, that's like, what? You're paying me not to work? And yet now I understand the value of making sure that people have rest and time to recuperate. And we've got the statistics that prove that if you don't rest, your productivity doesn't improve. So that changed me and it changed the way that I live the rest of my life. Wow. Well, I'm uh, very happy that you that you went because I know how valuable that is. And I, I moved back to Shreveport for about 10 years and then just couldn't take it. And one of the reasons is that this particular small southern town has incredible amount of racism. There's so many turf wars between the civic agencies that are trying to do good. And I'm borrowing a quote from Thomas Friedman that it just grinds genius into gruel, all that infighting. And so it's just not a very effective way to come up with solutions. I understand. And, and I think you talk about a moment in the book when you actually got a blessing from Maya Angelou. Yeah. Yeah. I was asked to work with a small Southern town and ostensibly they said that they were having problems with their executive director. And apparently there was newspaper articles where people were blabbing to the newspaper instead of talking to her and trying to fix it. And once I got there, once I talked to them, I realized this is an issue of race because it turned out that the job was like whether they were going to put resources toward remodeling Martin Luther King Jr. Street first or Elm Street. And I realized, oh my gosh, I... I haven't dealt with these kind of racial issues. This is, this, this is what, 600 years old? This is, what am I going to do here? So I asked for another African-American facilitator to work with me. I wanted to make sure that I was only 50% of the equation. But I also was asking all my friends who are African-American, like, 
what's up with that? And I've got a thousand different stories, but it wasn't until I was on the airplane and there was this uh, African-American couple, maybe in their seventies sitting next to me. And so I'll interview anybody. So I, I told them what I was about to go into. And I asked them, what is it that you think I need to pay most attention to? What is the hardest part about reaching some sort of reconciliation when race is an issue? And she at both of them, but she was the first one to tell the story. Well, the problem is that once you make some sort of level of a cooperative act, once you make a conciliation, if everybody in the room is there and they understand the reasons why you make that conciliation, then it makes sense. But what happens is your tribe out there is not in the room and they sent you in there to accomplish A, B, C, and D. And if you come back and say, oh, you know what? we're going to have to give a little bit on D, we can have A, then you get branded like a traitor. And this is happening actually in the American politics right now. We've got such an incredible division between the political parties that they, instead of increasing any chance to work together, they're absolutely concentrated on blame stories, which is a victim story. Anyway, so what happened was when we started to talk, I looked up and on the airplane, everybody's listening to us. They're all leaning in because here's a white person and, and, and two black people talking about racism, like with honesty. It, it was so much fun. And I learned a lot from them. And then the airline attendant comes and taps me on the shoulder and gets their attention as well and say, I couldn't help overhearing what you were talking about. And you might be interested to know that Maya Angelou is in first class right now. And I told her a little bit about what y'all are talking about. Would you like to meet her? And I'm like, oh my gosh, yes. I got goosebumps just talking about it. So what happened was that she was in a wheelchair at that point. And so they had moved her off of the plane, but Normally they would turn her to where nobody could see who, who she was as everybody's getting off and then they take her to where she needs to go. But she was waiting there for us and we got a chance to meet her and she wished us every success and the work that we were trying to do. So that was really cool. Wow. That was amazing. Yeah. What a blessing. What a blessing. For me, it's a testament to what happens when you have authentic conversations. Mm -hmm. People are drawn to authentic conversations. They're so tired of the make-believe and the pretend. Uh, and so when we show our hearts, what we're doing is it feels like you're being vulnerable. And to a certain extent you are, but what you're doing is you're going first in the dance of trust. So I can't expect you to trust me if I'm not trusting you. And so often business people think, well, I, that story, they could interpret it wrong, or I don't want to tell a story about the time I screwed up. They may think that's all I do. And my point to them is, you know what? You have to trust your audience first and they'll feel it. And when you trust them first, then they're much more likely to trust you in return. That's a really good point, especially for someone who might be suspicious of the meaning that other people make about them. Well, we're all going to be suspicious about the meaning people make. I mean, it was just yeah. a normal thing. If I tell you about the time when I lied when I was a little girl to try to get a Cinderella slipper to fit when it, it didn't fit in the first place, then it's natural to wonder whether you think I lie about lots of things. But if I were to tell you that I couldn't eat or drink until I told somebody that I had lied because it was two in the morning when I was like, I have to tell somebody, then, you know, 
we've all done that. And so, yeah. Exactly. It would be more empathy there. Yeah. yeah. No, that's, that's so true. That's so true. So how can we tell a story then about ourself or our backstory in a way that, like you said, doesn't make it seem that we are totally, completely bad people or that we're incompetent right. while still not kind of bragging. So I guess it's a balance. That's, that's an excellent question. That's an excellent question because when I'm in collectivist communities, nobody wants to tell a story about when they did the right thing because they think that would be bragging. And frankly, if you look at the perspective of storytelling, reinforcing norms and teaching people how to live, it's our obligation to tell these stories about a time when you shined. And once I can get, it's usually the CEOs, the VPs who like, I don't want to brag on myself, that once I can get them to share a story, and it doesn't necessarily be a time you screwed up. It, it could be a time when you absolutely went above and beyond. People need those stories. Otherwise, how do we expect other people to know when to go above and beyond? How do we expect them to realize that's even an option if we're not filling their heads with examples through our own stories? Very true. Very true. So basically, do not be scared about telling stories of your struggle and triumph. It's about having faith mm -hmm. as opposed to not being scared. It's about having faith. And this goes back to one of the questions that you asked originally, which is, how do I tell a story? And I ask you to think about well, what story are you telling yourself about your audience first? And so when we are afraid of our audience, we're telling ourselves a story about our audience that they're not trustworthy and they're going to feel that. And maybe they aren't. And then why are you talking to them? But when we trust our audience, when we come up with a story that allows me to have faith that the people who are listening to us won't take us the wrong way, won't conclude that I'm saying, let it all hang out all the time, go open kimono. Then I'm showing faith. They know how life works. And what we're talking about is being honest with each other about how life works. And it gives people a lot more freedom to admit mistakes and to share information, which is one of the things that uh, we need in order to succeed. Yeah, that's very, very true. And yeah, and, and instead of just stating it, you're basically taking them for a virtual walk or a virtual experience together. And a field trip. I like to think of it as a field trip. That's a great one. A field trip. Yeah. Who you are. And, and that comes from, I use the, the metaphor of the five blind men, each describing an elephant, wide and flat and leathery. And I'm on the ground here doing real work. It's round and stout like a column. And so when I explain storytelling, what I'm explaining is that it's, you have to take that person who thinks it's wide, flat, and leathery on a little field trip to see, hear, smell, taste, and touch what you have seen. And then they're like, oh. So instead of it being an adversarial, either or, we're building bigger stories that are more collegial and that help us come up with solutions we could never come up with by ourselves. And also you said that people value their own conclusions more than they value your right? Yeah, that should be obvious to everybody. But we don't think about it when we start making a presentation, we start trying to make them think like us. What we want to do is we want to engage, we want to create a place where they're curious about what we have to say, because we've already demonstrated our curiosity about their point of view. And that's something that I'm definitely going to take with me, because I want them to sit back and say, okay, and make them make the connection because i think in disney movies they really put it out there what 
what the point or the meaning of the whole thing was and it kind of yeah ruined- the moral to this story the is story, that, yeah yeah that kind of ruins Since it he, a little bit well it's insulting a lot of my friends are professional storytellers for children and so sometimes it makes sense to pull out the moral but in business it's an insult to act like that they don't and here's the other thing that happens is that People are like, I'm not sure they'll come to the right conclusion. Like I wanted that story to show that I have a sense of humor, not that I'm persevering. Are you kidding? Every story you tell is a hologram of who you are. And often what they get from the story is going to inform your next step so that you want to know what conclusion they happen to have come to at the end of your story. So I tend to ask, so what did that story mean to you? Or what do you see that's relevant in that story? That's great. Wow. Before we wrap up, I just want to ask, what place does listening have when it comes to to storytelling? Listening is actually the number one best way to get good at storytelling is to listen to other people's stories. And one of the steps that we kind of left out, and I want to make sure to get in, is that when you come up with who I am story from any of the four buckets, the first thing you need to do is test that story with a friendly listener. And so when I train my groups, the way that I train storytelling is as much a team bonding experience as it is a delivery of skills. And one of the reasons is that you have to test your story out on another human being. You don't just practice it in the mirror and expect it to connect with people. You need to see in the eyes of someone who understands the situation you're in what's, what's working. Now, I'm really strict in that no critiques. We over critique everything right now and storytelling is an art form and it is too soon to prune when you've just come up with a baby story. So we ask feedback for what it is that works on our story and then tell it again to somebody else. And it's the listener that makes you smart. It's the listener that makes your storytelling better. And so the deal is that if you want people to listen to you, then you listen to them too. And you will find yourself, if you're a really good listener, that you'll have a lot more people in your life that are interested in listening to what you have to say as well. And uh, is there anything that you think it's important to do with the information that we get from listening? I think my experiences have been that, for instance, in, in overcoming racism in the United States, there I've been working at different levels working with agencies, working with city council, working with community development. And so the most profound experience I have had in the last few decades is listening to my African-American friends tell me the truth about their experience. And so when you're white and privileged, you tend to not even know that somebody's suffering. And so A lot of the need for us to listen right now is to listen to people who are suffering and to allow that their stories to change our story. And so that's like, to a certain extent, the most important aspect of storytelling I can think of. I think of storytelling as a vaccine against war. If we really understood each other's stories, we we wouldn't fight. And so for me, listening is the great gift that you get when you start to pay attention to the stories people tell and pay less attention to the stories you're telling. It truly is. And I hope that more people will do that. 
as Me we too. move forward. Yeah. Well, that's a great note to end on. Annette, this has been amazing. And I think it feels like one of the fastest hours in my life has gone very fast. Please tell the audience where they can find more of uh, your amazing work. Well, all of my books are on Amazon. The Story Factor, though, the third edition, the one I just did last year, is on Audible, which I'm finding a lot of people prefer. It's, I, I like audiobooks as well. So that's the first thing. And then my website is AnnetteSimmons.com. And if you want to email me, Annette at AnnetteSimmons.com. I'm always willing to help people who are trying to use storytelling to make a, an important difference in the world. So I answer my emails and I'd love to hear from you. That is wonderful. And I can highly recommend getting the story factor on Audible. It's a wonderful book. And yeah, for anyone, really. It's got 110 stories in it. So I was trying to practice what I preach. Definitely, definitely. You got a lot of uh, exciting stories in there. So Annette, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. And we hope to, to speak to you again in the future. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's, it's been an honor. And I really do. I really am grateful for the opportunity to talk about these things. Thank you for listening to the Brand Blueprints podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, feel free to leave us an honest review. And don't forget to subscribe to check out our next episode.